Welcome to Bitch Talk, booze interviews straight from the heart of San Francisco. I'm Erin. That's Ange. Hi. That's Char. Hello. You can find us at bitchtalkpodcast.com where you can sign up for our monthly e-news. For behind-the-scenes videos and two-minute clips of our interviews, head to our YouTube channel and subscribe. You can find us every other Thursday morning at 9.30 a.m. at bff.fm. And if you like what you hear, rate and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For the love of God, do it. It really helps. Welcome back to Sundance 2021 and our coverage along with our friend John Wildman from Films Gone Wild. This is our uh, going out with the Bay Ang episode. It's all about the Bay, yo. Um, we had a really, really great time. In this episode, we talk about the documentary Amy Tan, Unintended Memoir, the documentary Homeroom that takes place in Oakland. And one of our favorite films, I think, from the festival, because I actually yes. watched it twice. I don't know if Ange was able to, but I know it's <laughs> definitely on her list to watch again is Marvelous in the Black Hole. Uh, I want to let you guys know that a couple uh, of episodes ago, we did have another local filmmaker on the show. Her name's Debbie Lum. And that interview was about her documentary, Try Harder. So if you want to go back in time a little bit and listen to that episode, please do. So let's get into it. All right, here we are on filmsgonewild.com and Bitch Talk. We are virtually at Sundance 2021, and our episode here is going to be talking about the documentary Amy Tan Unintended Memoir, and we have producer Cassandra Jabola with us. Cassandra, welcome to the show. Hi, Yay. thank you so much for having me. <laughs> yeah, I just have to start by saying I really love your body of work and the stories you choose to tell. You know, obviously, we're sitting here today to talk about Amy Tan, but you've worked on Ai Weiwei's uh, film. You really uh, like to highlight issues facing women and people of color. The Brown Girls Doc Mafia, maybe we can get into that later. But uh, I want to talk about your process. How do you choose which films to tell and how did you come on board with this project? Uh, so for this project, I actually had worked with uh, Jamie Redford, the director, for the past eight years. So he's uh, been a mentor for me, honestly, for the better part of a decade. And all the other films that we've worked on together have been, you know, social justice issues. Like one of the films we worked on was uh, Toxic Hot Seat about toxic flame retardants and expose on that. And uh, another film about climate change and another film about um, the play state and how children, adults, and seniors need to uh, need more play in their lives uh, for mental and physical health, not just children. Um, and so this was a bit of a departure for him, uh, a biopic on, on someone. And the film actually came about um, because he was interviewing Amy Tan for the, the Playing for Keeps film. Uh, the film is vignettes of different people and their stressful job and what their form of play is. Like a woman on Wall Street, her form of play is uh, paddleboarding or uh, a news anchor, his form of play is playing bass guitar. So, you know, they interviewed her for that. And um, our my producer, Karen, um, who is Jamie's producing partner, was watching it and thought, oh, wow, uh, she deserves her own film. She has such a deep, rich story. And so I'd been working on with various films with him. So that's how I came aboard that project. But how I choose my films usually is, you know, 
in the freelance world of documentaries, a lot of times um, it's through networking and people come to you, you're recommended by, uh, by colleagues you've worked with or friends and other people come to you with projects. And whenever people come to me with projects, I mean, there's so many amazing stories out there, but I really try to choose projects that resonate with me personally. Uh, with the subject matter. And a lot of times I am drawn to social justice uh, projects um, covering women, women of color, um, Asians, Asian Americans. Um, yeah, climate change, uh, any issue that, that I feel deeply about. And not to say that not all of documentary stories are important, but I know that I'll be more dedicated to a project if it's personal for me as well. Yeah, um, I have so many questions, but um, I, <laughs> well, I, I just want to give a, a, a background about why I was so drawn to this film. I'm born and raised in the Bay Area in the East Bay, I've lived in San Francisco for 16 years. Amy Tan, while I was growing up, was like the Asian woman, as well as Margaret Cho. So those were like who <laughs> I looked up to. So, so excited about this film and, and really digging into Amy's story. Um, I wanted to ask about the film and were there any stories that Amy felt she couldn't share or was she like, I'm an open book because this is, this is my un, uh, unintended memoir. So actually she, I think what was so important about the film, uh, the connection with, with our director, Jamie, is that they, they were friends. So I think for her to be able to share her story because she is actually a very private person um, mm -hmm. to be able to be vulnerable and give, uh, tell her story in her own words, knowing that it was going to be shared with the world. I mean, that that is very brave. It's a scary thing to do. And I think it's so important that when it's a biopic like that, that you trust the person who's telling it. And I think that she had that, that trust in Jamie because they had a lot of, um, they were friends and they had a lot of shared, um, they had some commonalities and I won't give away too much, but um, uh, I think that that was so important that that let her open up and give such candid answers when being interviewed. And really, um, I don't think she kept anything from us. She gave us full access to her decades old um, family archive, uh, film, film reels, uh, photos, just everything. She gave us access to absolutely everything. And there wasn't anything that she told us we couldn't talk about in the film, if anything, there was so much that we couldn't fit into the film without making it, you know, three hours long. So there were things that we had to uh, leave on the cutting room floor because her story is so multi-layered and interesting. And there's just so many, even one example is that she wrote the libretto for um, Bonesetter's Daughter, uh, mm. one of her books, which was turned into uh, an opera. We couldn't even fit that into our mm. story. Um, and there's so much more. I was going to say you could do a side a side doc about her being in a band. Anyways, go ahead, John. Yeah, I want to get mean, to that. I we know. I to, knew Ange yes. was going to be like that. Is yeah. it? Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, 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 I think that's a favorite segment for all of us. Is, is, is the band <laughs> uh, the band part and that and that outfit for these boots are made oh. for walking. Uh, um, but but I wanted to, uh, for you quickly to talk about a couple things. One, um, working with Jamie. Um, because you know, I, mean, I you know, I of course I had him at other film festivals of mine. Most recently, the Earth X Film Festival, um, and and just found him to be the you know the the the, the kindest, most patient guy um, ever. And so I, I'm curious to talk to for you to talk about that producer director dynamic 
between the two of you. And then after that, I would love for you to talk about the difference between making a documentary like, you know, um, uh, just independently and making a documentary that's aimed for PBS American Masters. <laughs> All right, I'll start with the first part of your question. Um, you know, working with Jamie was not only uh, a very, it was always a very collaborative and uh, eye-opening experience because he, 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 tell, he always is striving to tell impactful stories. Um, but also, I think one of his biggest strengths was the way he builds his teams. I mean, I think anyone who works in film in general or documentary, you know, it's all about the people that you're working with because it's so collaborative and there are many ups and downs. There are many egos. And he was just really great at putting people together and letting them each shine for their different talents and skills, but in a way that was a great meld. Um, and he also was very, it, it wasn't, it never felt hierarchical with him. He wanted to know everybody's thoughts. Everybody was welcome to give notes on the edits down to our assistants. He really cared what everybody thought because it's everybody's film. And um, yeah, I, it was honestly amazing. And I, I did work on um, Happening a Clean Energy Revolution. Is that the one that you're referring yeah. to? Yes, I worked on that too. And that was a very interesting experience because he, that was his first and only time also directing while being in the film and on the camera. And there was so much um, back and forth about whether he should be in it or not. And in the end, you know, everyone, the editors, the team thought, you know, this is your, it's your path of discovery in terms of trying to find out what, uh, and for those who don't know what that film is about, it's not just a gloom and doom film about climate change, but a, more exploring what are the different innovations that people across the country are doing uh, to help solve the issue, you know, hydropower, solar, solar power, things like that. But it was his own journey of self-discovery, trying to find out what people were doing. And it's sort of like a road trip journey with him. Um, and it was hard for him to have to be on camera, but also direct. And uh, I think I think he, uh, he was always willing to try everything. And it was always about what is gonna make this the best story, but also to all, all the films in a way to help people. I think you'll find that everything in his canon um, had a, a level of, of impact and purpose. Well, you know, Angela, Angela and Aaron and I were fortunate enough to interview him for this show, um, you know, uh, a couple of years back, I think. Mm -hmm. And and I think we were all, all three of us were struck by just the, the state of grace that he kind of had about him. Um, and, and, and so I could see that within a partnership of, you know, producer, director. And then, of course, in the second question is, you know, when you're making a film for PBS American Masters, um, you know, uh, you know, it, 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 there there are differences therein, and and <laughs> we have a lot of filmmakers watching the show, and I would love for you to, you know, kind of talk about that a little bit. Uh, yeah. So he, uh, Jamie, had this conversation uh, long before we, you know, we had already known that we were going to be slated with them. It wasn't a situation where we finished the film and then pitched it. So we always knew that we had them, which is not always the case in documentary where you're usually making it first and then trying to pitch it to distributors. So it's been wonderful to have the PBS American Masters team supporting us and guiding us. Um, and in fact, if anything, our work with them is just starting to begin. 
uh, now that we've finished the film. But um, in terms of our team, we tried to reference other films that uh, somewhat related to the one that we're doing. Like, for example, they have a lot of biopics on people who are uh, no longer with us, but uh, they had the films uh, Toni Morrison, The Pieces I Am, and um, Ursula Le Guin. Um, and I can't remember the full title of that, but those were two films about women authors, very different women authors um, who were able to tell their stories in their own words and be in the film about them because they were done while they were still, you know, while they're still with us. Um, and ours was similar in that way. So we did our research and we watched those and we wanted to see what, what they did. And, um, you know, of course, and all three are very different authors from each other, what their, uh, what their backgrounds are and what their work entails. But uh, doing that helped just seeing, because, you know, PBS American Masters, they've, they've been around for, for decades. Um, but no one film is exactly alike. They're not, despite the fact that they do have, you have to fit within broadcast standards, they're not, uh, they're not all one format, which is really great that they allow their teams to have the freedom to tell the story that it need the way it needs to be told for, for your particular subject. Yeah, so, so with this film in particular, there's so many twists and turns that come with telling Amy's story. And, you know, people really like to put the Asian American experience sort of into one mold. And, and while we certainly have similarities, our cultures are so uniquely their own. So I'm, I'm curious uh, uh, what parts of her story really resonated with you and, and, and what are some things that really surprised you about her experience? Uh, well, you know, as a Filipina American and Amy being Chinese American, it, of course, it's not like you just said, uh, all Asian cultures, they're not exactly the same, but I found that so much more of her story resonated with me than I thought it would throughout. And um, just even from her upbringing in America, little things like hearing her talk about, oh, you know, I was so afraid that my, there's a line in the film, I was so afraid that my mom would pack Chinese food for mm -hmm. lunch and I yes. was for, for my birthday, yep. but I was so happy to see that she brought the requisite cupcakes. I remember being a kid, um, at school and just being like, please don't pack me rice. I need sandwiches. Everybody else eats sandwiches. Lunchables no or yeah. <laughs> yeah. And wanting to fit in and le on levels like that um, down to just, you know, her relationship with her mother and uh, what that's like. And I know that people always say with the Joy Luck Club, it's not just about being Asian American, but it's about mother not just mother-daughter relationships, but mother-children relationships and how it's universal. And I think that that is why her work has been um, so, uh, has resonated with so many people even outside of the Asian American community because even though there is a lot of Chinese and Chinese American culture in her work, it's universal themes of, you know, family, love, loss, pain, things that anybody in any culture could relate to. So. Um, I think, I guess I'm getting off of your, your question a little bit, but in terms of hers, I mean, everything about it, even, even her talking about, uh, and we cover this in the film, um, being, uh, critiqued by media for, uh, not properly representing Asian Americans or writing mm -hmm. stereotypes and mm -hmm. talking about how, you know, she really needed to write what was true to herself, you know? And it's 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 tricky thing in, in representation because her she writes fiction, you know, and I think uh, 
people who have criticized her work have have wanted her to be more political or be a more rep more representative of the community when really you know that's not what she sought out to do these these books are very personal and they they bring to people something that is not that um so it has a significance in in other ways but yeah i, I don't want to give away too much of the film, but there's so much that I think people are going to be surprised by, but also really find um, moving about her story. Yes. And I know we're running low on time. So I just, I had a quick question about her brother and I don't know if you can expand on this at all, but I, I really appreciated that you had um, him on camera and telling some of his story and the family story. Was there anything of his story um, that was different than Amy's story and how they grew up. Um, I was just curious. You know, it's interesting. Um, we, of course, we mostly interviewed him about her and their their life together, and um, uh, and he. We have quotes with him talking about her, her their mother, and um, you know, memories around the piano. And um, there's some the, some great brother sister moments in there, like when he talks about first meeting. Um, Amy's boyfriend who then became her husband when she brought him home during college and how he didn't like him at first. And uh, there's just little things where uh, there, I don't really think their stories didn't match up, but I just love hearing both of their perspectives of the mm -hmm. same events. Mm -hmm. um, and there's more there that we, you know, there's so much more that again, we wanted to include that, that isn't in there, like little subtleties that I think people would have loved. I don't want to give, again, it's hard. I to, know, I'm trying yeah. not to. <laughs> There's a fun scene in there that uh, kind of harkens back to some of the inspirations for her writing um, and scenes from the Joy Luck Club. And uh, yeah, it, it's wonderful to be able to feature her brother. Yeah. Um, because again, it's so family oriented, the whole story and her work. Well, you know, I, I think it's, it's of course an amazing journey that I think, again, all three of us, you know, I think came into it knowing a certain aspect about Amy's life and then finding out so, so much more, um, which, which of course is, is a wonderful thing. And I also think one of the strengths of it is, is showing how a writer's life um, steeps into their work and, 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 and fuels it and, and much like the title, um, it becomes unintended. And, and, and I think that is also such a special aspect of this film um, that, that, that uh, such an artful way uh, that, 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 that you and, and, and Jamie did to, to kind of, you know, show us that flow, that flow of real life onto the printed page. Um, it, it, it's, a, it's a wonderful film. Again, it's Amy Tan, Unintended uh, Memoir. And we've been talking to Cassandra Joel, the producer. It's been wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you again for having me. Uh, this has been lovely. And thank you for asking such uh, thought-provoking questions and not just the typical questions that, you know, I, that are typically <laughs> asked of, you know, they're very specific and I really appreciate that. And I, I hope you all enjoy the film.
welcome to Sundance 2021 with Bitch Talk Podcast and FilmsGoneWild.com. I'm Angela Tabora with my co-host Aaron Lim. And right now we are sitting down with one of the stars of the documentary Homeroom, Denelson Garibo. Denelson, thank you so much for being here. No, thank y'all for having me. Yeah. I feel so blessed to be here with y'all. <laughs> Same. I mean, yeah, to be in your presence is definitely just an honor. So why don't you uh, break down for our listeners who haven't seen this yet, what Homeroom is about and uh, what your character, which is yourself, (laughs) how you fit into the story. So Homeroom is a film uh, that captures the lives of Oakland youth, Um, you know, youth that carry different stories in Oakland. So, you know, around that we have students who are leaders we have students who want to uh, start their own uh, YouTube channel. We want. We have students who really just don't know what to do after high school, you know? And Homeroom sort of captures that and, and gives representation to everyone that's watching it in a way. And, you know, my part in the film, well, I'm an Oakland youth organizer. You know, I, I'm an Oakland youth advocate and you know, I was the former student director of Oakland Unified School District, um, representing the 36,000 students. No big deal. No big deal. No yeah, big no big deal, <laughs> Donaldson. I, like, I say it so many times that now I'm just like the 36,000 students, you know, but it's, <laughs> it's such a big deal and such an amazing honor that I had. Um, and, you know, we were trying to eliminate the school police in Oakland because it was I believe the only district in our county that had Oakland school, that has a school police department. So we were trying to cut all ties with them. And we were first, if if we think about it, we were first in the country to, to sort of start this initiative because all these other schools started, started the initiative, you know, after the George Floyd incident happened. Right. And we were, we were already on it. We, we said, we need to cut the police. We don't want no connections with them because we know how our black students feel, you know, and we want them to have a safe space to learn and to thrive. And that's what we did. You know, it took a lot of work from the community, a lot of unity and solidarity, you know, if it wasn't for the organizations in Oakland, like the Black Organizing Project, the Black Organizing Project, man, shout out to y'all. Like, I I hold so much love for the Black Organizing Project, everything they do. And, you know, all the work that they did with like OC Council and all the students in Oakland was most definitely worth it because now we don't have no school, no police connected with our schools. Right. You know, um, but yeah, Homeroom is such a, an amazing, an amazing film. Like, and it was a great opportunity for, for me and like, you know, all of the, the youth that were part of it to, you know, shine a light on the problems that we face in our everyday life. You know, growing up in an under-resourced district, underfunded. So, you know, and it sort of gives an insider perspective as well because it, Oakland is so diverse Mm-hmm. You know, and the unity from the community is just amazing. And a lot of people don't know that, you know, and just the fact that they get to see that, like, it brings me so much joy. I have a lot of um, a lot of questions. We may have to go over time a little bit. So because um, <laughs> I want to share time with my work isn't that big a deal. You can. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Forget it. Just forget for it. A little bit longer. You've done your job, Donaldson. You don't even need that degree. I'm kidding. Of course. <laughs> I'm voting um, for you either way. Yeah. It doesn't matter what you run for. We're voting. So anyways, um, 
about the film, how were you first approached? And what did you think once filming started? Okay, so the, the film, the way that they approached me um, was one of the sound crew members. So she was an um, alumni from Oakland High and she sort of went into the leadership class I was in and introduced herself because she had heard from my history teacher that I was one of the two student directors mm. and sort of they wanted to know more about that. So she was asking me questions, you know, like, like she was saying how she's from Oakland and I was like, that's dope, you know, and we got to know each other and she sort of told me more about the project they were working on. And I was like, wow, like that's, that's super inspiring so uh in a way they sort of um asked me if i wanted to be part of it and i was like um of course you know like sure and um and jen just the filming started happening out of nowhere like i didn't even realize like them just following me around but obviously it took a lot of um a lot of good communication with each other with because you know we had to be comfortable enough to like speak on the conversations we were talking about. And at times, you know, we were like, okay, we don't want the cameras here because this is like something sensitive. But then we got used to it, you know, we sort of ended up just concentrating on our goals, which was um, all the campaigns we were working on. We were also working on Oakland Youth Vote. We were also working on Oakland Youth Vote, which is a huge campaign that was able to pass on. So uh, Measure QQ, um, you know, a campaign that Oakland Youth was working on to uh, give the chance to 16 and 17 year olds to vote for uh, the representatives right. on the yes. school court. Mm -hmm. That was such a big thing. And of course you were working on that. <laughs> 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 Sorry, keep going. <laughs> well, I don't know if you know, just quickly that we're based in the Bay. So all these things that have been going on, we've been following Oakland School Unified Unified School District with the police. We've been following the youth vote and all these things. So just seeing you at the helm of it was just amazing. Anyway, go on. Oh God, it's it feels so good that you say that too because just being like that example that Oakland is is being yes is is powerful. But um, yeah, we were working on Oakland Youth Vote first, and then that's when we got in connection more with the Black Organizing Project, and that's when we sort of shifted the work and started dividing it to work on both campaigns. And at the end, you know, we made it possible, and they sort of do show that in the film, us doing canvassing and all of that to get the Oakland Youth Vote passed, but, you know, some major scenes were left out that, you know, but it's good to see that people know about the Oakland Youth Vote. Yeah, I, th I think one of the parts, other than your advocacy and how successful you are and continue to be, one of the things that was really powerful for me about the documentary was you and your little crew having these debriefing sessions after each meeting and just kind of keeping each other pumped up, really, because it's so hard to stay positive when everybody's telling you no and, and the adults in the room aren't even listening to you. Like, who are the adults in this room? It was so frustrating to watch. But those little meetings you guys would have afterwards were my favorite parts of the film. So can you talk about, I, I would imagine that would have been hard for you to share those moments because you're really raw after things like that. Mm -hmm. No, most definitely. It brought in so many, like the emotions came back watching those scenes of us just like um, debriefing on what happened. But, you know, I, I feel so blessed mm -hmm. that I had like a team like that by my side. You know, there were, there were like, 
and they still my friends. Like I, I love Micah, Dwayne, Lynn, everyone that was part of All City Council Student Union. We all supported each other in a way that, you know, we just motivated each other to keep on thriving, to keep on continuing the work that, that we feel that passion towards. And, you know, and at the, at the end of every meeting, it was just necessary. It, it came so necessary that it, it just became natural to have these little circles and, and talk about the situations that, that had happened um, before, you know? And I remember when um, the OUSD voted no, on the uh, George Floyd resolution, the first voting, you could see like everybody was in such a, a distressed moment and we were all so angry and, you know, a lot of emotions happened that day. So we had to make a sort of restorative justice approach and like sort of heal each other by speaking to each other and opening up our emotions because that that's necessary, you know? As, as humans, we don't really talk about our emotions, but that's really necessary if we want to heal. Um, but yeah, it, 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 was, it was so inspiring. Like, it was good. Yeah, I, I really appreciated you and your response to, was it the president of OUSD at the time? Yeah. And when they voted no, when she voted no. Mm -hmm. And you, you really were so respectful about your response, um, but very direct. Can you, when you watch that, did that also, you know, was that, how was that for you? <laughs> when I and what, and what was say, what were you actually saying in your head? I'm just kidding. Yeah. Yeah. And how do you have that filter? Can you teach us? I would, I am not like that at all. Ange can attest to that. And I'm a grown ass woman. So <laughs> that's on period. No, watching it though, like, I was like, oh my God, did I really just said that? Did I really just said that? Because in that moment, you're just like speaking from the heart, you know? And you're just trying to express yourself and like everything that you're feeling inside. So I really didn't catch what I was saying. I was just speaking my truth. And, you know, at the end of the day, I'm so happy that I said what I said because it's true, you know, like Jody London, um, like she is, she was, uh, the president of the uh, Oakland Unified School District, and she was supposed to be representing the 36,000 students, you know, and her sitting there on a position of privilege as a white woman mm -hmm. shouldn't uh, deflect, like, her vote on eliminating school police. So I most definitely feel, um, you know, I don't regret it. I don't regret saying anything I said you know, especially to the other uh, board members that were people of color, are people of color, and actually look like the people who they represent, look like the students that they represent, like, come on now, come on now. Right. So, you know, um, it, it was like, it was <laughs> even, I keep rewatching that same scene. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> just take a bow. That's all, just bow. Yeah. Be like, bravo, bravo. <laughs> Yeah, but I have to go back. I'm like, wait, wait, hold on. <laughs> well, you, pro you probably blacked out a little bit. I mean, that's what happens, right? Yes. You black that shit out. Sorry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> when you're angry, it's just like, you just say what you got to say. Yeah. But the, the timing of it all, like not only everything that you were able to accomplish within this one brief year of your school career, but also with COVID entering the scene in January for your senior year, 
I mean, I was glad to see some scenes of you guys just being kids, you know, dancing at a dance, whatever. But you had to end your senior year, you know, via Zoom, like like we are right now. And and that adds just a whole other, just a whole other layer of, of pressure and stress and, and anxiety to, to your life at such an important time. So how are you doing with all that? Are you still finding time to kind of be a kid? I mean, you still are, you know, you're young, you should be able to feel free, you know, do this important work, but also just kind of let loose and, and have that for yourself. No, truly, truly. Um, I'll say that I'm handling pretty well in, at my end, um, you know, with college and everything happening, um, you know, I'm sort of just taking everything pace by pace. Um, but, you know, now you're people like I myself, I'm, I'm used to it already, you know, like, obviously, from time to time, I'm like, Again, like I'm tired of Zoom University, but um, you know, it's like we got to keep on pushing, and especially when we saw the the scenes um, of all city council student unions still working through Zoom and stuff like that. You know that that just shows that the youth have like the power to just like t um, adapt into any system or anything like that to to fully. Um, overcome the problems that come their way and you know the work still continues so you know i'm still hanging hanging in here but you know piece by piece not letting my anxiety get over me <laughs> yeah i i have a question that's not about the film and about you as a person when mm -hmm. did you start your i'm gonna say it when did you start your political career <laughs> my political career okay student government career i don't know i mean we hope so we need yeah you. i mean i mean you have roots I, you have roots thank you thank you there was a thing that was mentioned in the film um which is when my mentor denzel were uh, talking about the board meeting and he was like uh he asked me if i love politics and i said that was my passion um, looking back at that scene, I feel like I didn't know the difference between politics and like community organize, organizing mm -hmm. at a local level. Yeah. So I feel like my passion is most definitely, you know, community work, community work, working alongside the community and, you know, especially, especially working alongside Oakland youth, like that, that just brings me joy and brings me so much happiness to work with them. Um, because, you know, I will, but like now I'm 18. I was in Oakland. I'm technically in Oakland youth, but now I got to take my position as an adult ally, you know? Mm. So, um, my story sort of just started in, in freshman year of high school. Um, you know, looking back at that year, I was surrounded with so much violence. Um, I remember, you know, two Oakland high school students died. Uh, Antoine Williams, he was shot and killed. And Nia Wilson, you know, who right. was, she was unjustifiably stabbed and killed uh, by a white man, you know. On Bart, yep. Bart Our platform, yep. Arthur. And that that sort of like, like, I internalized all of that, you know, I would, like that pain I felt and I, it sort of made me want to get out of school. And I was like, no, like, my grades even went down. It was, it was such a moment in distress and, and just pain happening at the time that I, I did not know what to do with myself. And then um, I somehow 
had a talk with my mentor at the time and was like, you need to, you need to get it together. You know, you, you, you need to stop like taking your education for granted because if you really feel that way, you, if you really feel that pain, use that as a motivation, you know? And I, I sort of used, used that, you know, I wanted to give uh, Oakland students a fighting chance in their education. And that's when I got more connected and with organizing and like with school uh, leadership and all of that. Because, you know, my story is not unique. Like, and I always knew that because the more I got, I got involved in leadership and organizing, the more I got to hear different stories from students all across Oakland, all across different schools. And that's when I realized the issues that we were facing are systemic. But I, I also realized the power that youth have when we come together to change those realities. So I, I took that in and, you know, I, I use that as, as a motivation. Now it's just something that I, I love to do. And, you know, the fight always continues. Well, Denelson, we love you. And <laughs> you, you, so many incredible kids in this film. You may or may not be our favorite, uh, but either way, just thank you for everything that you're doing. And I think you taught Aaron and I a few lessons just in this interview alone. So uh, we can't wait to see what you do next and, and take care. And I hope you keep in touch. Thank you so much for having me. This was such a great talk for sure. Welcome to Sundance 2021 with Bitch Talk Podcast and Films Gone Wild. I'm your host, Angela Tabora, with my partner in crime, Aaron Lim. And we are talking about Marvelous and the Black Hole. We just going to clap right now. I'm yeah, clapping. We love, oh my God, so much love we're about to give you guys. Uh, we are sitting here with director, writer, Kate Tseng, and our lead talents, Mia Check and Rhea Perlman. So thank you for being here so much, all of you. We're so excited. Thank you. So we want to start uh, with Kate. We'd love to have you talk about your film and, and how this came about. Yeah, so Marvelous in the Black Hole is a coming-of-age film about a teenage delinquent, played by Mia Check, who befriends a kid's magician, played by Rhea Perlman, who helps her navigate her dysfunctional family life and inner demons with the help of sleight-of-hand magic. And the film touches on grief, unlikely friendships, and is a joyful celebration of resilience. It's loosely or not loosely but it, it's inspired by my relationship with my grandfather and it's the film I wish I had when I was growing up and still want to see now yes 100 I, I have to say from the second it started I, I was smiling throughout the entire film and as soon as it, as it was over I wanted to watch it again I mean this is just really just really hit home and, and you talk about you, you never saw representation you know we're all in that same boat and finally, I, I felt seen, I felt heard by this story. And, and I wanted to know, Kate, um, what was it like directing a film that's so personal, that's so intimate to you? Um, it felt, you know, it was born from, as I said, a place of wanting to be seen. And so it felt like a relief to finally get to tell the story and honor that I got to tell the story with such amazing artists as well. It's um, yeah, there was just this 
feeling that I needed to get it out there. And that was the, the main thing driving it. And um, Mia, you play such, I mean, to me, a badass teenager. Was it, um, <laughs> I mean, sure, she's a little troubled, but she's, she's going through it. But was it, was it hard to find that inner badass or is that something that uh, is just there for you? You know, surprisingly, to my surprise, it was not hard. <laughs> I feel like when Kate and I first talked about like what Sammy um kind of what her character would be like who she is what those layers are we kind of um kind of sorted that out and we kind of figured out that it was coming from a place of um of hurt and, and frustration and that feeling of loss and grief and we kind of figured that out at the beginning so it was kind of easy to put it in kind of like put myself in that in that place and kind of just let it out into into the world <laughs> so surprisingly it wasn't hard it was definitely not as hard as I thought it was going to be <laughs> and Kate actually Kate really helped me out she we talked about the script we talked about um the layers of the character like I said and also we talked about what like what our relationship was with her mother who she lost early in the year and that was kind of where we figured out that that sense of hurt that sense of loss in that kind of uh, loneliness and frustration that that anger was coming from. Yeah, it must have helped. You were allowed to be a rebel. You're like, just <laughs> go crazy, you know, as a kid, you're never told you can. So so good on you. That's awesome. And, and for, for Rhea, how did you get a hold of this story? And, and, you know, through your illustrious career, how did you decide this was the role for you? And I also want to know if you knew any magic prior to this. But. Yes, that <laughs> seemed very natural. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's the yes. compliment I could get because I knew zero <laughs> magic. And it was really, really difficult to learn, but fun because I had an amazing magic coach, um, this famous woman magician, uh, Akela Drescher, who was so patient with me. And she would do me videos in slow motion, backwards, forwards. I mean, it was just uh, ama amazing, amazing. Um, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to do the movie because it just seemed so completely different and out of my, um, you know, sphere of work at all, you know. And, um, uh, and it came to me just really like out of the blue, like magic. <laughs> I got a phone call one day from a friend, a mutual friend of me and Kate, we didn't know each other, but he said, my friend Kate um, is, is doing this movie and she wants you to be in it. Do it, do it. And I was like, <laughs> okay, okay. And I was about to call my agent when he sent me the script and I immediately loved it. I, I loved it. And I saw Kate's short film she had done for, for Tribeca. And um, it was, it's such a great film if you haven't seen her short. You know, I knew she was incredibly talented. I didn't know Mia yet, but she told me she was incredibly talented. And I just, um, you know, fell right in. I, I love the storyline of just this unlikely friendship. And, and it really is an important message that everybody has something to teach us no matter what your age is. So I, I'd love to talk about uh, with, with Mia and, and Rhea, how, how you formed that bond and that unity before, before filming, because it's just, you have such a great rapport on screen. Um, well, you know, we, we worked together at my house 
um, mostly on the magic and just in general talking. And we went, all of us, Kate included, and, and Carol and the producer, we went to a magic show at the Magic Castle. And um, oh, was, yes. I want to go there. Yes. Yeah, of course, you have yeah. to go there. Yeah. And it was, um, you know, it was a very bonding experience um, just before the movie even started. And, and Mia, what was it like for you? Were you, were you familiar with, with Rhea's work and, and, and what was it like working with a, a seasoned pro like that? <laughs> yeah, um, I had, when I had seen Rhea's name um, in the email, like we were like, we wanna practice magic with your co-star, Rhea Perlman. I was so elated, but also really nervous. I was nervous sighted because- <laughs> Oh. <laughs> because she's been such an iconic actress for such a long time and it was just like it felt like such an honor you know and then I was like super nervous and then when I when I met her it was like an immediate connection I felt that like I felt so I felt like that nervousness was all for nothing because she was like so easy to talk to and so easy to just be around and it kind of was like that immediate like kind of like a flow of energy that we kind of had and that was <laughs> yeah she has really great energy we got on set and like we shot a couple scenes together and I realized that she like really helped the flow of the scene because that's that's something that's really helpful for both actors to kind of have a flow and a rhythm especially when you're doing those scenes where it needs to be back and forth and back and forth and that was just like really comfortable with Rhea. <laughs> yeah and Kate when you were writing this film did you have Rhea Perlman in mind as a magician? It's just like the perfect fit. <laughs> it, it really was magic. I'm sorry, mm -hmm. I'm going there. It was so <laughs> perfect. Yeah, when I was writing the film, I knew that the character of Margot, in order, the person who would get through to Sammy, who's incredibly angry and walled up and closed off in a way, that person would also have to have some sort of you know, experience with that kind of pain, like some grit, but also had warmth. And Rhea Perlman embodies those things so perfectly um, that, yeah, I feel incredibly lucky that that her play Margot. And Kate, did you grow up, we've heard that you grew up in the Bay Area, is that true? And, yes. and, and Mia? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so Kate, it felt um, a little oddly Berkeley-ish, and I don't know if that was on purpose or not, and Rhea's house, Margot's house, felt like Berkeley 100%. Yeah, it's definitely East Bay. It's like yep. nebulous East Bay, and I'm so glad <laughs> you picked up on that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, just want, I don't want it to see um, a place where I grew up, basically, and my family, and it, I'm so, it means a lot that you picked up the Bay Area vibes from it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's something that that you did so well. Like, it's a universal story that everybody's going to be able to relate to. But it was also so specific for for Aaron and I, like like she said, it felt like it was from the Bay as an Asian-American experience. But it's still so universal that anybody will watch this and, and really be touched by it. So you, you did a really beautiful job of just making everybody feel related to this film. Thank you so much. I do have to talk about the TP stealing. I mean, was this pre-COVID? Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like so topical. Yeah, that was like a unexpected surprise um, in post when that happened. Because um, uh, this script had been written um, 
for several years before we ever shot it. And we shot it in the fall of 2019. Um, oh. <laughs> and that TP was really like sort of a character indication or like a moment for me, you know, like Margot was this person who was very, you know, crafty and she'll like see an opportunity and take it. You know? um, it's also uh, inspired by one of my uh, classmates when we were in NYU and we were like students who couldn't, you know. <laughs> I was going to say, I did that in college. I totally did that in college. I'm you would sorry. see the TP card out <laughs> and then you take a couple rolls and go home. I went when the pandemic happened and the toilet paper thing happened immediately. And uh, it was like that it made sense for me for the first time, really, why this character had this obsession with stealing that. In particular. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she had gone through a time in her past life, in her early life, where she didn't have much. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, not to tell people the whole story and everything, but, um, you know, so of course it makes sense, like something that you've gone through and then it's just like, you have to, just in case, you just got to take some, just in case that happens again. And there, and then it did a few months later. <laughs> yeah. You seem like a natural stealing it, Rhea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Were you, you taking, were you taking notes, Mia, from this film? Like, oh, okay, this is good. These are good tricks of the trade, you know, how to survive in this world. <laughs> uh, no, yeah, we, we had actually, Rio, correct me if I'm wrong, but we didn't really know why she stole toilet paper. Yeah, we didn't. I mean, <laughs> no. there's no particular answer. And then I, you know, and so, and that's okay, because sometimes you just have to make it up yourself or you yeah. just do it because it's in the script. You know, <laughs> yes, the trade. You just do it. Um, but you know, really, then it totally made sense to me when um, when the pandemic started. We yeah, done that. <laughs> yeah, another thing that really uh, stands out and and stuck with me is just the idea of grief and and how it takes many different forms, and everybody deals with it in in so many different ways. There's not one right way to do it, uh, especially now, you know, everybody's dealing with some sort of loss on, on many different levels. Um, so um, Kate, can you talk about your process in, in, in talking about grief and, and making it okay to, for it to look like different things? Yeah. Um, so the theme of grief came about um, inspired by my experience, like going through, divorce as a young kid between my parents and having to bounce between their homes back and forth, um, the Bay Area and Hong Kong. And it was such an isolating, depressing experience um, that was really hard on me. And it was only later on that I realized that, you know, as an adult, my parents were also going through their own grief um, and their own processes of it. Um, even though at the time, you know, I couldn't tell. And so it's, it's sort of like a, a humane loving way of looking at how my parents were experiencing this very traumatic period for me as well. Um, and also the, the storytelling aspect um, of this film is inspired by how when I was in Northern California and 
um, my grandfather came from Hong Kong to watch me as a kid. Um, he could tell I was really struggling and he saw me, he validated me. He became the friend and confident I needed. And at night he would tell me these stories, um, tell me go to sleep because I had really bad insomnia and then nightmares also when I actually fell asleep. So in order to help me go to sleep, he would tell me stories that I later realized as an adult that they were actually his own horrifying experiences with the Japanese occupation of Hong Kong that he had transformed into these cathartic fairy tales, fairy tales for my sake. And he taught me the power of transforming and channeling your pain into something beautiful and powerful. And that is the same lesson that Margot teaches Sammy. And before we wrap up, I do have to give you a shout out for that uh, never ending story callback. I loved, <laughs> I loved that. <laughs> the uh, flying bunny. That was one of my favorites. Um, yeah. Thank you guys so much for being on Bitch Talk, Kate, Mia, and Rhea. We love this film so much. So much. It's, you're all magic. You're all so incredible. I'm going to watch it again today. <laughs> I, I know. I know. <laughs> it's on our list for sure. Thank you. And good luck at Sundance. Thank, Thank you so much. That was so much fun, all of these interviews. And I have to give a shout out to Sundance for really putting the Bay on the map this year and uh, really honored to talk to a bunch of Asian American women from our city. It just, it just had a different impact, I think, just being in the virtual room with them felt so good and it felt so so comforting, really. Yeah, I, f I felt like this year we saw way more Asian people, but maybe it's just, <laughs> I don't know, maybe it's because we didn't do 69 interviews also. Maybe because we're <laughs> looking at ourselves too. <laughs> it's like looking in the mirror. Oh, because it's basically looking in the mirror. <laughs> This is very different from last year where we did 69 interviews. We only did 15, but I still feel like, you know, we were in it, sending emails, watching movies, you know, trying to get in on the deadlines. And I hope you guys enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed being part of it. Well, don't forget tomorrow we have a uh, wrap up with the with the whole gang. Uh, probably one of my favorite teams, one of my favorite Sundance teams. I mean, I guess also because we all did a really good collaborative effort not knowing how to, you know, navigate around virtual Sundance. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I thought it was going to be easier. And it, it was to an extent, but still just as busy. And I don't know what easier meant, but... Yeah, but hear, hear all of our opinions tomorrow in our in our basic wrap-up. The behind-the-scenes dirt, yeah, that you never knew you needed. So thank you, Sundance, and thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, rate and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about us, you can head to bitchtalkpodcast.com. This podcast is created, hosted, and executive produced by Aaron Lim. My co-host is Angela Tabora, a.k.a. Captain Party. The show's edited by producer Shar. We're powered by GoTo Productions.